How do you solve a problem like Maria? I uh, recently heard on the radio that the city council of the Austrian town of Salzburg has decided that it cannot, in all good conscience, name a street after Maria von Trapp, uh, the young nun that we all know about from that very famous film, The Sound of Music. Uh, They can't name a street after her. Well, on the one hand, Salzburg is famous really only because of two people, um, Mozart and Maria. Together with Wolfgang, it's Maria and the sound of music that has put Salzburg on the international tourism map. And today I understand, I haven't been there. Has anyone here been there? Yeah, a few people. I understand that today Salzburg is dominated by Sound of Music tours and paraphernalia and Sound of Music t-shirts and Sound of Music anything you like. Well, as the movie shows, the Von Trapp family were conscientious objectors to Hitler and his Third Reich. And they fled from Austria in order to live first in England and then in the United States. And that took enormous bravery, moral courage, and it's praiseworthy. They took a stand, especially as many, in fact probably most Austrians, actually were passionately pro-Hitler and the fascist vision of the future that he preached. However, on the other hand, in Maria's autobiography, she does say that she used corporal punishment on the Von Trapp children. Punishment that Uh, by today's standards, is unacceptable and indeed is illegal in some countries. The city council rejected um, the application for a street to be named after her on that basis, that she disqualified herself for this honor by way of her abuse of the children in her care. And yet, many say, her methods were both acceptable and ubiquitous in her day. Is it, is it fair? Is it just? Is it appropriate to judge her by today's standards? Well, I'll leave that question hanging while we examine today's text. In our readings today, we've heard about how David goes and joins the Philistines, making a living for about a year as a professional raider. He joins up with the Philistines in one of their major military campaigns against Israel, but is rejected as untrustworthy, and he has to go home. That's the story. Uh, Let's unpack it a little bit. Uh, First off, David seeks political asylum in Philistine. This decision may have taken us a little bit by surprise, especially if, if, if we were here. If you were here last week, you would have heard Saul, king of Israel, say to David in chapter 20, verse 21, uh, David, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Be- because you considered my life precious today, I will not harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and I have been terribly wrong. Well, uh, Saul had been trying to kill David for about a decade. And at that point, he seems completely repentant. But David doesn't trust him. And he was right not to trust Saul. Saul was not trustworthy. Chapter 27 opens with David sharing with us a deep conviction. Sooner or later, he says, sooner or later, he's going to get me. I've got to flee this nation. I've got to become a refugee. I've got to hide out in some other country. Only then will he abandon hunting me. 
And in verse 4, we see for ourselves that actually David was perfectly right about that. Verse 4, when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Uh, Saul's uh, guarantee wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. Um, He was completely untrustworthy. David was right not to trust him. Uh, And uh, just to put this in some kind of context, verse 4 marks the end of a decade-long persecution that in our Bible lasts nine chapters. Well, as David moves to Gath, there's a lot that the narrator doesn't explain here. David had fled to Achish, king of Gath, once before. And if you remember, on that occasion, David actually had to pretend to be insane in order to escape being killed. Why does he find Akish so welcoming this time? We don't know. But Akish actually gave him his own town, uh, the the field city or country town of Ziklag. And that's where David and his family and his 600 men and their families, their, their wives and children, all settled. Given that the Philistines were the arch enemy of Israel at this time and had been trying to wipe Israel off the map for about a century... Was David doing the right thing here? It's not a question the narrator answers for us. Second thing, how David makes a living. David and his men go strip raiding. What was strip raiding? Well, it was an exceedingly common ancient way of making a living right across the ancient Near and Middle East. And it has continued up to today in various forms. Strip raiding was a basic part of the economy. It was kind of like Samaritan's Purse, but backwards. What you did was you got some horses and your mates together and uh, you swooped down suddenly on some unsuspecting and isolated community somewhere, probably, preferably at dawn, perhaps an isolated tent settlement or some very small hamlet not big enough for protective walls. And what you did when you got there is that you took what you wanted or what you needed on the basis of overwhelming force. If you needed sheep and cattle, you took sheep and cattle. If you needed clothes, you took clothes. If you needed donkeys and camels... You get the picture. If anyone tries to stop you, you kill them. Perhaps you take a few of them as slaves. Perhaps you take all of them as slaves. Now, the good thing about strip raiding was that it was probably outrageously good fun. And you got ri- another good thing about it is you got really, really rich really, really quickly. So it's kind of a win-win for everyone, really, isn't it? I can't see any problems with this. Um, He um, added a twist to this, however. David brought in an innovation, and his innovation was to kill everyone. Not to take any of them as slaves. He killed everyone. And the reason that he did that was that he didn't want any survivors telling King Achish what he was up to. And David, you see, was lying to King Achish, telling him that he was going east to, to raid the southern areas of Israel and Judah. But he wanted Akish to think that actually, um, um, sorry, have I got that right? David was lying to King Akish, telling him that he was going, going east to raid the southern areas of Israel and Judah. And he did that because he wanted Akish to think that he was already attacking his old homeland. 
that he was, he was so, so converted that he was already attacking the Israelites. But in actual fact, he wasn't going east, he was going south. And he was strip raiding, leaving no survivors, killing everyone, male and female, lying to his head of state. A, a question we might ask ourselves as we read this text is, was David doing the right thing here? It's not a question our narrator answers for us. Here's the third thing. Uh, David tries to enlist in a major military campaign against his former homeland. And it is a major campaign. Now, Philistines weren't a nation in the, the modern sense of having national borders and passport control and security checks. Um, like Israel, and in fact most other nations at that time, the Philistines were a people. They were what we would call an ethnic group. Uh, they had five kings, and they lived in a general area, generally speaking, between Judah and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and there were other ethnic groups scattered around them and indeed through them. But at this point in history, five kings gather their forces. And the other rulers approach Achish and say, Hey, what about these Hebrews? Um, now, most uh, scholars, modern scholars aren't totally sure about what I'm about to tell you. But there is very good evidence that suggests that the ancient word Hebrew doesn't refer to an ethnic group but rather it means wanderer. It was probably a word with some definitely derogatory connotations. It meant a homeless person, an itinerant, a nobody, somebody without an ethnic group, someone who doesn't belong. Hey, what about these Hebrews, these folk that don't belong? Akish replies that David and his men have proven themselves reliable over a year of them living in his service. But Akish, as we saw, lost the argument. David is just a bad risk. And the commanders, the other commanders, they're just not having it. So Akish sends David back to Ziklag. Um, conversations um, about conversations between David and Akish bookend the battle scene. Uh, that's hard for us to see because there's some other stuff about Saul in between. But at the beginning and at the end, there's a conversation between David and Akish, and both of those conversations were given so that we can see David's sincerity and the zealous desire within him to prove to Akish that he is his faithful servant. But this is the same guy that the prophet Samuel had anointed king over Israel. And he would one day, he will one day actually take up that throne. What's David doing here? Was David right to make that commitment to King Achish, king of the Philistines? What was David doing? Was David doing the right thing? That's not a question the narrator answers for us. Why not? Well, the book in your hands, uh, the Bible, it, it is commonly assumed that the Bible teaches morals and that Christianity is about morals. 
In some place, the word morals sounds old-fashioned, and instead we talk about values, principles, or ethics. But the assumption is still there. Christianity is about that kind of stuff. You know, it's about how to behave, how to be a good person. Now, there is some idea that the Bible wants to shape our behavior. Yes, there is some truth to that idea. But if we think that that's the Bible's primary interest, then we're in for a shock. And we'll find passages such as today's deeply confounding. And for centuries, Bible scholars have twisted themselves in knots trying to work out how David's behavior here is praiseworthy. But what you get when you focus on morals is moralism. And moralism is deeply corrosive to Christian spirituality. Moralism puts the focus on us and on our behavior. It puts the focus on what we are doing for God. And that's not the focus of the Bible. The focus of the Bible is God and his behavior. The focus of the Bible is God and what he's doing for us. Commenting on this uh, book of 1 Samuel, the theologian Walter Brueggemann observes, quote, we're dealing with a highly self-conscious literature that observes the undercurrent of divine governance without being explicit. Yahweh is with David Everywhere, unquote. In other words, it is totally intentional that the narrator does not answer the questions that we've posed this morning about whether David is doing the right thing or not. That the narrator's focus is God being faithful to David. And he is. And the narrator's view of the sovereignty of God is such that he doesn't even need to mention his name for us to see him doing that. Whether or not it was right for David to go to the Philistines, God is with him, providing for him, keeping him alive, keeping him safe. We don't know why Akish just doesn't kill him, but he doesn't. And amazingly, he actually gives him a town as his very own. Not only that, but because of God's amazing faithfulness to David, that town would ever after be an Israelite town belonging to the kings of Judah. Whether or not, David's strip raiding was the right thing to do. God is with David wherever he goes, keeping him alive, providing for his needs. He Actually, God has promised to do so. And the promise wasn't conditional on David conforming to some pre-negotiated standards of behavior. And so we see God being faithful to his promises to David even when David's behavior goes totally outside the bounds of anything that we'd be prepared to recognize as acceptable. This is the shock of the text. What I'm saying is that God is faithful to David even when, especially when, we wouldn't be. And lastly, God sovereignly intervenes to stop David from doing something that would have destroyed him. 
If David had gone up to fight the Israelites as a Philistinian mercenary, he would have destroyed himself he or, and or he certainly would have destroyed his ability to later on govern Israel as king. God steps in to stop him from that awful folly. And the sovereignty of God is seen in the fact that he uses people who are opposed to his rule to do his will in stopping David from doing something silly, stupid. God uses people who are opposed to him to save David from David. David, we can see, he's trying really hard to be a moral person. And what was one of David's values? Well, one of David's shining values is loyalty. Comes shining through. David was loyal to his father, loyal to his sheep, loyal to his shepherds, loyal to his brothers, loyal to Saul, loyal to Jonathan. David is this really loyal kind of a guy. And that's a good value, isn't it? And now he wants to do what he thinks is morally right, which is being loyal to Akish. And God steps in and saves him. David, at this point in time, can't even lift a finger to save himself. But that's okay, because God is perfectly capable of working out his purposes in David's life unassisted. David's behavior will have consequences. And in actual fact, I'll come back to this in two weeks' time. Next week, we look at Saul. But for now, we simply need to see the staggering faithfulness of God. God is faithful to his promises to David, even when he needs to step in to save David from David. And God makes the same promises to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we believe in Jesus, we belong to God as his children, as his sons and daughters. He promises to be faithful. He promises to to keep his promises, to be with us wherever we go, to protect and to provide for us. As we learn to trust Jesus to meet our every need, we will tend to behave less and less like the people around us and more and more like Jesus. But the primary focus must always be not on what we are doing for God, but rather on what God is doing for us. And the seal of the deal is the cross. Jesus died for us. The Father did not spare his one and only Son but gave him up for us all. Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. For, for those God knew in advance, he also chose in advance in order that they might be molded into the image of his son, making Jesus the prototype of many brothers half of whom are girls. If you'll bear with the figure of speech. Uh, Making us male and female just like Jesus as we trust Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, God will be this faithful to you too. Which is actually just as well when you think about it because most of us live in Ziklag. And most of us work for King Akish. Many of us don't know how we got there. And we don't feel great about it. But we don't know what to do. 
We know that there are awful contradictions between the organizations that we work for and the kingdom of God. And in fact, pretty much all of them are in open defiance of and in contempt of the lordship of Jesus Christ, including actually, if you think about it, the multinational that I work for too. In many of the things it says and does. We, we know that the economy that houses, feeds and clothes us actually kills people. I mean, hidden people a long, long way away. But we're rich to, to the detriment of others and it costs lives. We, we know that we'll benefit from a, a very sophisticated form of strip raiding. Can Jesus really save me here? Can God our Father really fulfill the purposes he has for me in this place at this time, working for this organization? Yes, he can. He's the only one who can. Amen. And that leads me back to Maria. How do we solve a problem like Maria? Maria made a difference in her generation because she, she wanted to serve God in her generation. Actually, Maria really, really badly wanted to be a nun. Um, but her mother, Abbess, her mother superior, told her that it was God's will that she married George von Trapp, even though he was 25 years older than her and had seven kids. And on the day she got married, uh, she writes in her autobiography, on her wedding day, she was furious with both God and George because actually she really wanted to be a nun she didn't love George she kind of liked him not in that way she loved the kids you you may be pleased to know that she did eventually grow to dearly love her husband um, uh, 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 and, and be pleased that she was married to him but she really wanted to be a nun she wanted to make a difference And she did make a difference. God used her in many ways. Their stand against Nazism was important, strategic, and heroic. Maria served God in her generation as a creature of her generation. And that's what makes the question of whether to name a street after her so difficult. On the one hand, we must judge by today's standards, and historic injustices and abuses must be acknowledged. It is reasonable that child abuse should disqualify someone from civic honor. On the other hand, is it fair and just to expect Maria to see something that no one else around her saw? With respect to child-rearing practices? Is it realistic to condemn her on the basis of our values? That's not a question I intend to answer. What is encouraging is to see with respect to Maria, is what is encouraging is that God can use a creature of her time in her time. And that is encouraging for me because I am a creature of of my time. Uh, one of my own personal heroes and somebody I occasionally mention in, in, in sermons is, is William Wilberforce, uh, the man who led the campaign against slavery in the British Houses of Parliament in um, the closing years of uh, the 18th century and early years of the 19th century, leading to the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. 
And he's a great, towering Christian, fantastic bloke. Uh, he was um, the, a co-founder of CMS, um, Church Missionary Society, an organization I belong to and support. We prayed for Brit already this morning. She's gone out with CMS. Uh, um, William Wilberforce was also a co-founder of the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, And, you know, I'm passionate about animal welfare too. I love animals. I think he's great. I know that he was extremely generous uh, with his money and his property and, and, and he housed and fed in his own house homeless people and sick people and poor people. He was enormously hospitable. God used him. And, in fact, God called him to serve him somewhere really horrible and evil, namely the British Houses of Parliament. But, but you know what? Whilst, whilst campaigning for the rights of slaves, he opposed workers' rights in Britain. He was an active campaigner against unions, trade unions. And um, however you might... This was a time when Britain desperately needed trade unions. His um, views on women were such that he considered it unacceptable for a woman to speak in public, even if it was in the cause of abolition. And he once berated himself very, very severely for having accidentally shaken the hand of a butcher. Such a degradation. William Wilberforce was a creature of his time. And we shouldn't be surprised to see that. It's easy for us to condemn William, Maria, and David for failing to live by our standards. And even easier when they conspicuously fail to live by Christian standards. But David was a creature of his time. And his time was a long time ago. 3,000 years in fact. We don't know how history will judge us. I'm sure that some of the things we take absolutely currently for granted, our descendants, perhaps even our own children, will condemn us for. The the good news of this text is that God chooses creatures of their time to use in their time. And he can use them in their time because he, God, is faithful to the promises he makes. Perhaps allow me to say that again. The good news of this text is that God chooses creatures of their time to use in their time. And he can use them in their time because he, God, is faithful to the promises he makes. History may indeed condemn us. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't used us to his glory in Christ Jesus, his Son and our Saviour. May it be so. Amen.